Welcome to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans with Kirsten Johansson. Kirsten and her guests are here to help you stop struggling with your own self-acceptance and teach you how to love yourself unconditionally. Now, here's Kirsten. Welcome to Freedom for Humans, where we talk about the ways in which we as humans can free ourselves from suffering by practicing unconditional love, acceptance, and compassion for ourselves. I'm Kirsten Johansson, your host. And I, um, as always, am delighted to be back with you this week. Uh, I am here live. So if you're listening live and you'd like to give me a call or send us a message, please feel free to do that. And we will, um, we'll try to get that on the air for you. So today I'm going to talk about fear. I talk about fear with you quite a bit. I've sprinkled it around in many of the topics that we've covered and I've characterized it as kind of uh, one of one of uh, self-hate's little henchmen. So for instance, when we talk about self-hate and we talk about the narrative uh, that self-hate creates, we also talk about how it often taps fear on the shoulder and says, hey, come with me and make this person feel scared because if I talk some crap to them and then you make them feel scared, they're surely going to believe the crap that I'm talking because fear is very compelling uh, in terms of an emotion. And um, it's very convincing because of its intensity. And because most of us uh, try to avoid it or don't, don't enjoy fear um, that, that makes it all the more, that makes it all the more compelling because we are either engaging with it in a way that is potentially not helpful to us or we are avoiding it because of how unpleasant we find it. And in both cases, it gets fed. So we're feeding it if we're engaging in it and believing it. And if we're avoiding it, in both cases, we're feeding it and making it bigger and stronger. So today we're going to conduct a little investigation into fear and the process of fear and how to deconstruct it a bit and demystify it and to de-identify or disidentify from it. I was um, I was delighted last week to get to have a chat with Sherry Huber, who wrote There Is Nothing Wrong With You. And uh, she's written a lot of books, actually. Um, and one of the books that she wrote is called The Fear Book. And so some of the concepts that I'm going to talk with you about today uh, come directly out of The Fear Book. Uh, when I met with her last week and her uh, co-author, and the person that um, oversees the the Zen Awareness uh, Center and Retreat Center and books and practices, um, Ashwini, they were telling me about all kinds of things that they're that they're doing that are always exciting to me because I really enjoy and appreciate their work and the way that they write. And they were talking about um, procrastination actually, and the fact that procrastination is one of the number one things that people request help with that they're struggling with. And in the fear book, Sherry identifies that procrastination protects fear. It's a, it's sort of a foot soldier for fear. It keeps fear in place. And so it just, it causes me to come back to something that I think I already know, but it's such a good reminder that if procrastination, which I think we all have experience with is, is one of the things that people are struggling with the most. And that is one of the the things that people are asking for help with the most. 
it tells me that fear is also um, ever present in people's lives and that they may not even know that behind that procrastination um, is actually fear. Um, Okay, so I'm going to talk about what fear is and um, share a few little stories with you um, that are about fear from my own life. And then we'll deconstruct those using some of the concepts, again, that Sherry shares in uh, the fear book. The fear book is available where you get your books. There's also an audio version available on livingcompassion.org, Sherry's website, and um, that is available for download at no cost. So if cost is an issue and you you like an audio book, like I do, um, you can actually download it directly from their website. And it's a two-hour listen, like much of her work. It, it seems simple, um, on the surface or simple in its approach. And once you get into it, it's quite dense. So I found the book to be enlightening and dense. And I listened a couple of times and I look at, I took a ton of notes and I still, you know, I really want to go back to it again, because, um, as someone who has, uh, I'm not even going to say suffered anymore, but as someone who has (laughs) had a relationship with anxiety, uh, for much of her life, and anxiety is a close cousin, if not a sibling of fear. I'm quite interested in understanding fear and the process of of fear, because um, I still I still have some anxiety that crops up here and there, and in particular uh, places in my life that I would like to better understand. So, what is fear? Sometimes I like to go to just the definition, just the straight definition of it, and I found this one. Um, I found this one interesting for a couple of reasons. So fear, an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. So the first part, an unpleasant emotion. Fear sometimes feels like something very different than simply an unpleasant emotion. Like for instance, disappointment is an unpleasant emotion, but it doesn't necessarily conjure up the same uh, things that fear does when we hear the word fear. It's an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief, caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous or likely to cause pain or a threat. So that really is the key. It is about what we believe and what we listen to. That is going to dictate the process of fear and how we engage with the process of fear. So I'm going to move into my first story. Just looking at our time here. I think we're okay. Um, And it's called The Movie Theater. So I love horror films and particularly ones that really scare me. In fact, if I watch a horror film and I don't jump and get uncomfortable and spontaneously yawp, or cringe into a ball of anticipatory fright, I'm disappointed, annoyed even. One of my favorite Friday afternoon activities when I was working a a regular corporate job was to complete my work for the week and mosey to my favorite movie theater with the comfy recliners for a good scare, a hard reset, if you will. Now, one such afternoon when I saw a film um, that was not in the horror genre, but a quiet indie character study, I experienced fear of a different stripe. I entered the empty movie theater and took my recliner seat in the middle of the middle. As I sat waiting for the previews to begin, I found myself hoping another human would enter the theater. 
it would not be my first solitary theater experience. There have been a number of them over the years. Being alone in the theater actually, you know, mitigates the annoyance of movie talkers. This phenomenon, a movie talker, requires using all my best tools to avoid challenging the yakker to a duel in the parking lot to settle the clear philosophical difference between a movie talker and a cinephile. But today, I found myself hoping someone else would enter the theater. You see, as I began to imagine a terrible calamity, I conjured it in vibrant technicolor and my body flooded with bona fide horror. My small theater was located down a long hallway within the 16 uh, screen multiplex. It was soundproof, of course, to avoid the audible muddling of one story with another. It was dark. The electric recliners were oversized and when fully recumbent, challenging to get out of quickly. I gauge the distance and accessibility of the exit. Being in the middle of the theater, I'm neither near nor far, but regarding reachability, it would be a race and a battle to get to it before my imaginary tormentor. No one will hear me scream. No one will hear me die. By strangulation, by stabbing, the methods run through my mind and are violent and personal. The staff checks the theaters at specific intervals, but there is plenty of time for murder between inspections. In fact, a clever murderer with a plan will know these interview intervals. The slayer can carry out his plan and nonchalantly go back to the movie for which he bought a ticket, undetected and alibied. It would be very easy to kill me here. Yep, very easy. This all happens within a minute or so, this premonition of my violent demise. People will not say, quote, at least she died doing what she loved. I am now scared out of my gourd and nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. A movie theater is like a church to me, a place of reverie and rejuvenation. I seek out horror movies to be entertained by fear. But this this is another matter altogether. I consider leaving and decide I will not. <laughs> I am defiant. I fend off defeat by this gremlin I know is only in my mind, but the gremlin continues its argument, quote, well, it could happen. With each tormenting whisper, I'm flooded with the intense discomfort of fear. This is not the relaxing, edifying, enriching experience I anticipated when I walked the few blocks from my downtown condo. I breathe into my belly. The one thing I know will bring calm to my body and focus to my mind. I'm not having any luck fighting this foe, fear. So I breathe at it, in through my nose, expanding my belly, out through my mouth, over and over until the hormonal storm visited upon me by manufactured dread begins to subside. I manage to calm my body and my mind enough to sort of focus on the film. I don't enjoy it. I feel drained and traumatized and irritated This that this fake effort has ruined my movie. 
And it begs the question, if the fear of a horror film is manufactured to scare for entertainment, what is the purpose of fear manufactured by the mind? Hmm. Fear feels very real, but does it actually exist? When I relayed this experience to my then partner, it was dismissed without so much as a question or momentary confirmation of veracity. It, it did not exist, which of course it didn't exist. But as I relayed it, I could see in his mind by the reaction that it just was nothing. There was just nothing there. And, I, and I'm thinking, but if he could have felt what I felt, I'm sure he would just not poo-poo it so readily. And therein lies the crux of the fear experience. And ultimately, that of many emotionally charged experiences that we have in even one day of human life. Okay, so um, so let's break down the movie theater story. And in the fear book, Sherry talks about two, two things, the object of fear or the subject and the process of fear. And what she what she suggests is that the object is unimportant. Um, so we all, you know, if, if we're asked what we're afraid of, you know, if you if you said to me, well, what are you afraid of? Well, I maybe jokingly would tell you that I'm afraid of sharks. I am actually afraid of sharks. And if you just ask me generally, like, what am I afraid of or what am I phobic about? That's the one. That's the one. And so, you know, I don't, I don't swim in the ocean. I don't because I'm I'm afraid of sharks. But the object is really unimportant. We we could all name our, you know, our greatest fear. People hold public speaking often as one of their greatest fears or heights or spiders or snakes or um, antiques. Some people don't like, I mean, you name it, right? But it is not the object that is important. So in this case, the object is an imagined attacker. So addressing the unlikely nature of this occurring, uh, this this uh, theater attack that I've that I've made a movie of in my mind and scared scared myself with, and trying to de- deconstruct the object in order to wrangle the fear, will not actually work. So it seems like the correct focus, but focusing on the object of fear does not address the fear itself or the process of the fear. It's not the thing you're afraid of that requires investigation. It is the process fear uses and how this process gets in the way of you staying in the present, engaging in life, and enjoying whatever you're doing. I just want to say those three things again because they seem so simple and yet they require a tremendous amount of practice and they are so deeply intrinsically tied to peace and joy and happiness and ultimately being able to navigate things like the process of fear. So the three things, staying in the present, engaging in life and enjoying whatever you're doing. Okay. So the object is, is, uh, doesn't really matter. It is the process of fear that we want to focus on. So we're conditioned to find these sensations uncomfortable, 
even though they're similar to excitement, for instance. Um, They're also similar to what we experience when we watch a scary movie, but we're conditioned to remind ourselves consciously or unconsciously that it isn't real. It's just a movie. Our own fear is not real, but we don't necessarily understand that. And as I mentioned in the beginning, it's very convincing. So we believe it. And if we're not interacting with it, we are vacillating to trying to avoid it. Like once you touch a hot burner, you tend to not want to touch a hot burner again. And fear can feel that way. It can feel that intensely uncomfortable and painful. But both approaches feed fear instead of starving it of attention, engaging with it in its process and allowing it to run the show or putting your energy into avoiding it, feed it, and make it bigger versus starving it of attention. And it makes me think of the, of course, the Roosevelt quote, the only thing to, that we have to fear is fear itself. Fear of fear is absolutely a thing and is one of the key pieces of the process of fear. So in this short film, um, that I made in my in my mind as I was sitting there waiting for my my movie to start. In the short film of my movie theater murder, I'm terrified. And in imagining the terror that I would feel if this situation occurred, I experienced the terror. So the terror that I conjured up feeds the fear, ramps up the sensations that we equate with fear. And I'm afraid of the fear that I imagine in my detailed what if scenario. And I could have imagined anything. I could have imagined that somebody comes in the theater and I'm a superhero and I leap over the seats and I shove them out of the way and I run out the exits free. I mean, I could have imagined anything, but I really engaged with that fear and imagined the worst. And so She talks about object and process, and then I'm going to add just a statement about what is real, which is a way of telling the compassionate truth. It's a way of using compassionate honesty. What is real? I'm at the movies waiting for the film to start. I'm alone in the theater. That's it. That is all that's real. We are going to take a short break. You're listening to Freedom for Humans, and we will be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you tired of overeating, overspending, drinking too much, or being in relationships that drain you? Do you have invasive thoughts that make you feel bad about yourself and your life? Do you keep pushing yourself to the next goal only to find that it doesn't bring you happiness? You don't have to live this way. You can live a life of well-deserved freedom and happiness. Coach Kirsten Johansson is here to guide you. Book your free discovery session today at giraffetangooctopus.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device. 
including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Giraffe Tango Octopus Freedom for Humans. Have your own story or have questions for Kirsten or her guests? Join us on the show at 866 472 5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Freedom for Humans. This is Kirsten Johansson, your host. And today we are talking about fear. And I'm sharing some examples with you of how fear has manifested itself in my own life. And then we're breaking it down using some of the concepts that Sherry Huber writes about in her small but mighty book called The Fear Book. So the second story is called, The Devil is Watching Me. So I'm in college and I receive a call from a friend who is living on the ground floor of the same dorm that I'm in um, while I am on the fifth floor and top floor. She was scared, truly afraid. I resisted going down to her room, but quickly acquiesced, hearing something in her voice that was unfamiliar. Upon arriving at her small room, she explained that the devil was watching her. She could not shake it, that there was a presence of evil. She could not stand to be in this room with its window flush with the ground outside. The nighttime intensified her terror and the darkness was descending. I listened to her and asked some questions about how long it's been going on and what might have brought it on. I'm focused on the source as if rooting out the source and the logical or illogical nature of said source will give me ammunition to joust it out with fear, the devil, a demon, an evil presence, whatever the source is. My roommate has gone home for the weekend, just 30 minutes up the freeway, as is typical for her, so I invite my friend to come upstairs and sleep in my room. The beds are end-to-end. There's a housing shortage, and I'm sharing a single room with another person. My friend wants the beds next to each other. Her fear requiring human closeness beyond the head to foot that the beds are currently configured in, but the room is small, and moving the beds is impractical, so we leave them. I offer to try my sleep meditation tape. I've been toting this tape around since it was given to me in rehab, where without alcohol and weed, I cannot sleep. It's a deep male voice that begins, quote, greetings, 
and welcome. My friend is startled by the voice, screams, panics, begins to cry, and hyperventilates, and I immediately turn it off. She then asks me to pray with her. She believes it may be the only way to ward off the evil that seems to have attached itself to her. I've determined with my line of questioning that this is not a location-specific ghost, (laughs) but more of a personal demon, the kind that follows. I want to help her, but I'm an atheist, and I don't feel that my prayers will be authentic and thus will not be helpful. I have, after all, seen The Exorcist a number of times. The school is a religious university, so there are many religious people around, but it is late. I decide to knock on the door of the resident assistant uh, for the fifth floor, who to me seems rather devout. She comes to the door awakened from sleep and listens bleary-eyed to my explanation of the need for her faith and her prayer. She agrees and comes next door to my room. The three of us hold hands with me focusing on being as present and connected to the prayer as possible. While I don't believe in God at that time, I do believe in the devil. She prays for peace and protection and connection to God. It is moving to me, this demonstration of faith. After the RA has returned to her room, my friend lies down and within a couple of minutes is asleep. Soundly. I am not. I quietly slip out to use the common bathroom down the hall and a few stairs. I feel something behind me. I turn, and there's nothing there. I feel a sensation of being followed as if by something malevolent and unfriendly. There is nothing there. When I emerge from the bathroom, I quicken my pace back to my room in an attempt to elude. Once inside, I lay awake, my body electric with fear. Eventually, sleep comes, and with daylight, There is a fresh start. My friend does not want to speak of the evil and seems embarrassed by it even. Other than me responding to the RA's inquiry about whether my friend is okay, it is like this brush with the devil never occurred. It leaves an indelible mark, this experience, in that either demons exist and test the vulnerabilities of one human after the next, or fear is transferable. Perhaps it is both. So in this case, the object uh, is the devil, a demon, a force of evil. And it's not particularly helpful to debate the likelihood of that or from where it comes or what might have brought it on. Now, at the time, uh, you know, I asked a lot of questions uh, in that vein to try to be helpful. And that's that's totally natural when somebody is afraid of something for us to focus on the object and to try to somehow make something reasonable out it out of it but again the object is relatively unimportant it is the process of fear that we really are focusing on here so fear created a story of a malevolent evil presence and my friend believed it She felt all the sensations that come along with fear, which made it convincing. 
And once I was introduced to the narrative that fear used to sustain itself and keep itself alive in my friend, it was contagious, almost like a movie created to cause a broad fear response. I mean, I keep returning to this idea that we create things to cause fear for entertainment. But then when we create things that cause fear in our own minds, it feels as though it's not, it feels as though it's not within the same sort of control that we might have when we know something is manufactured. So in this case, I caught fear. I caught it. And I began to believe the narrative. So again, fear is the belief that something could be threatening. So applying the hypothetical that we even agree that evil exists and that demons attach themselves to people, there was nothing actually happening. There was nothing happening. There was the fear of what might happen. And that is typically what fear is about. It is about the unknown. It is about what might happen and the thoughts that come along with that. It's not actually real. Prior to the phone ringing and me being brought into the fear narrative of my friend, everything was fine. Everything was still fine. So once I entered that world, of course, I I became part of the fear narrative. But that's all it was, was the narrative. And everything really was, was fine. There was nothing wrong. Nothing had changed other than my engagement with fear. All right, I'm going to see here and look at our time. I can get this last story in, I believe, before our second break. And it is called The Harvest Moon. And I included this one because the first two were conjured up. And I mean, we can debate <laughs> whether evil exists or the devil exists, but that, again, is, is not important. Ultimately, those two uh, fear processes were generated without really anything um, tangible connected to them. And so I did want to include a story that is about something tangible, but also shows that the process of fear is ultimately not helpful and that investigating it and understanding it and learning how to um, ultimately starve it of energy in the end is, is what is helpful. So this story is called The Harvest Moon. My friend and I, around the age of 14, are in search of weed. This is one of the driving forces of life at that time. The clandestine logistics are time-consuming and bring us into contact with a wide cast of characters and make the locating and purchase of it all the more satisfying in a way. On this particular day, my friend mentions that the harvest moon will be out, making it late summer. We meet our schoolmate at a distant park where he's playing tennis and by the weed that took a number of calls and networking to track down. Neither of us is familiar with this park or the neighborhood in which we find ourselves. We deduce that we should probably walk that way. That way takes us through the large park. And as we wander, the darkness drops like a curtain. It's the kind of darkness that makes it hard to see your hand in front of your face. And that makes me open my eyes wide and search the blackness for signs of familiarity. And then she points to it, the harvest moon. It is a magnificent orange ball in the sky. Wow. I can still 
see it so clearly. As I'm admiring it and chatting with my friend, I see something move in the dark out of the corner of my eye. She sees it as well, or maybe feels it. It's not an it. It's a who. It's actually two who's. It's two men. They seem to have been following us and have spaced themselves out such that one is in front and one is behind us, circling us like prey. Out comes a knife and then another. They make a sound as they flick them open. And as my eyes have adjusted somewhat to the dark, I can see the weapons outlined. When I encounter intense fear, I become very still and start to process everything in my surroundings. Where are we? Is there an escape route? How accessible is it? How far would we have to run? Can anyone hear us scream? What are our chances? When faced with a situation that could threaten my safety and survival, a plan is in order. This is helpful. Practical steps to be taken to address the experience, the situation, the actual threat to my safety. Staying present to the situation is the safest path. But in addition to these helpful questions that flood my mind about the actual situation, there is a completely separate conversation with fear happening. In this second but concurrent exchange, fear determines that the likelihood of sexual assault seems very high. So it tells me that I should choose my rapist. The tall one seems less gross to me, so I select him. Then fear continues to lead me down the hellish path of future what-ifs. What if I am raped and injured enough to have to report it? How will I explain what I'm doing here? What if I have to have an exam and a blood test? How will I hide my drug use? If I'm murdered in the park, surely they will know that I'm not who I am pretending to be. I will be found out. Yes. Fear is telling me that my murder (laughs) will not be good for my image, that I will be a posthumous disappointment. I also reflect on my mistaken belief that there is safety in numbers, that the two of us being together will ward off attackers because alas, there can be two attackers. This all happens within a moment. My friend has the gift of gab. We are opposites in many ways, and my quiet introversion is juxtaposed by her assertive extroversion. So she does what she does best and engages them in conversation. She begins to ask them questions, whether they have a light, if they know the way to this or the way to that, where they went to school. She is nonchalant about it, as if what is happening is not really happening. Interestingly, they respond to this engagement. While it is playing out, I am standing like a soldier at attention, holding onto her arm with a death grip, gauging the distance back to the tennis courts, the lights a mere twinkle in the distance. Her chatter leads to what high school they attended 
and whether they played sports, most particularly football. Yes, the taller, less gross one attended school and played football where my father teaches and coaches football. My friend yanks out my dad's name, a subtle weapon of our own, and indicates that I am his daughter. His posture changes. It loses some of its menace. He knows my dad. And like most of us, including me, fears him. He tells us they didn't mean anything and were just trying to scare us. Mission accomplished, I think, and do not believe him. Finally, some other people move through the dark swath of the park, merely figurative outlines. I call out to them, but they hurry along in that we don't want to get involved type of way. It doesn't matter. It is enough to disrupt their efforts, and we back away from them and go our separate way. My friend reminds me that I can now let go of her arm. We are lost on foot, and it will take hours for us to find our way out of the unfamiliar suburban sprawl and back to our stomping grounds. We do not encounter the knife-wielding stalkers again, but we are on the swivel just in case. I take with me the important lesson that safety is a relative illusion. And as we're close to a break, um, I'm just going to mention that issue of safety. And then when we come back, we will deconstruct this and also go over some tips and strategies to manage fear um, when it comes up for you. And what we're going to be focusing on is, again, not the object of the fear, but the process of the fear. Um, so in that, last, in that last line, I said, I take with me the important lesson that safety is a relative illusion. And of course, there are, um, there are ways to, you know, be cautious and to be smart and to protect ourselves in certain situations and um, allowing the desire for safety and to control safety and avoiding fear can actually take us out of life because we are ultimately not in the present life. We are in fear. We are in fear of what might happen and we are avoiding fear or trying to avoid what we believe um, might be a threat to us. But again, life is now. Life is happening now. And in the now, everything is probably fine. And even in this situation where there was an actual belief um, that I was threatened and, and there was something tangible to be afraid of, the process of fear took a tremendous amount of energy away from staying present to the situation and the energy that I could have been using to, again, get myself out of that situation. So we're going to go to break. And when I come back, we'll break that down a little bit further and share those tips with you. You're listening to Freedom for Humans, and we will be right back. 
Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Are you tired of overeating, overspending, drinking too much, or being in relationships that drain you? Do you have invasive thoughts that make you feel bad about yourself and your life? Do you keep pushing yourself to the next goal only to find that it doesn't bring you happiness? You don't have to live this way. You can live a life of well-deserved freedom and happiness. Coach Kirsten Johansson is here to guide you. Book your free discovery session today at GiraffeTangoOctopus.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host, keynote speaker, and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now, she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for the Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans. Have your own story or have questions for Kirsten or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Freedom for Humans. This is Kirsten Johansson, your host, and today we're talking about fear. And I shared a story called The Harvest Moon with you right before the break. And in The Harvest Moon, there there was actually a tangible um, a tangible sort of source or reason to be afraid. And so if we break that down um, into an object and a process and what is real, it looks something like this. So the object is that there are two men with knives. That's pretty much it. I don't, because I don't know anything else. So even when, you know, I'm, I'm having the experience and I'm standing in the, in the dark park with my friend, um, there are two men and they each show us a knife. That's, that's, that's it. That's what I know. Everything else occurs inside of me, in my mind and in my body. And in this case, I did have an experience that sort of, when people say I saw my life flash before my eyes, I think that's interesting because I don't know if that necessarily means that you go over your life. Um, you know, I was 14 or something years old, so I hadn't lived a lot of life at that point. Um, so I don't know if it's so much that you review your life as much as seeing your life flash before your eyes is a uh, is a f- engagement in the process of, of fear. Um, I'm not really sure. So in this case, fear immediately jumps to the conclusion that that rape is imminent. 
And then it convinces me that I will not be able to escape it and that I can mitigate it by somehow picking my attacker. Um, Okay. That's just a completely unrealistic reach for some control in this situation. I mean, it's fear taking me down a path that is ultimately not at all helpful and certainly doesn't uh, center. It really doesn't center me. It's just completely um, based in this narrative that is being created very, very quickly. Um, as this is playing out um, and it plays out as an attack, uh, you know, fear has it playing out as an attack that's violent enough to require medical attention, which will, you know, it's the seventies and eighties I came up in and stuff would happen to us. And we, we, we didn't necessarily report it. We kind of had a tendency to dust ourselves off and move on if we could. Um, it was just a different time and a different culture um, that I grew up in. And so, you know, I'm thinking about not, not so much what's going to happen to me, but, but that I don't want it to be bad enough that I have to actually get medical attention. And then it tells me that if I receive medical attention, surely they're going to do a, a blood test. And then my drug addiction is going to be exposed. And then it adds that if I'm murdered, um, that same information about me will be exposed and that I will be a shameful disappointment. All of this takes me out of the present. All of it takes me out of the actual experience. Engaging with fear will pretty much always take you out of the present because fear is mainly thoughts and sensations. It's sensations in your body, but it's not necessarily present life. So not only could I have used the clarity of thought and the mental energy to keep taking in my surroundings and my escape options and making a plan, but being flooded with these thoughts fed fear and made it bigger. It it made the situation much, much scarier than it would have been otherwise had I simply stayed in the moment and continued to kind of gather information um, to help me make a plan. Um, And so, as I mentioned earlier, avoiding fear also makes it bigger. Um, so it's meant to be investigated and understood and ultimately noticed, ignored, and made to shrink. What we kind of want to do with fear is to bore it to death. Uh, I think, you know, as I was working through this material and thinking about my own, the fear I have in my life currently that I um, that I seem to have a little boxing match with, um, I started to think, about how to envision sort of starving fear or getting to this place where you can be understood and noticed and investigated. And then ultimately, huh, okay, I see you and ignored. And like, I'm going to bore you because I'm not going to pay attention to you. I'm not going to engage in your narrative. I'm not going to pay attention to you and you're going to become bored. And then you're going to move away from me, um, is, is kind of the way that I'm, um, envisioning that. So when I break down in this, this last story that I told you, what is real, what is real is there, there were two men that followed us in the park. They each showed us a knife, my friend engaged them in conversation. And then they backed off and said they were just trying to scare us. That's, that's it. I mean, that's actually all that happened. In reality, everything else that happened, happened inside of me and was a narrative 
created by fear about what could happen and the consequences of those things happening. And it's utterly exhausting. So you, if you're somebody who experiences fear and any of this is resonating with you, you might also be aware that engaging with fear in that way and being sort of led down, down a path by it, whew, it is, it is exhausting. It's draining and exhausting. So here is uh, some strategies for beginning to look at fear as a process and to understand it. And again, um, many of these come from the fear book by Sherry Huber, um, which is really a fantastic, mighty little book um, that you can listen to in about two hours. So first, we're going to practice awareness. And by practicing awareness, we're aware, we become aware that fear has entered the room, so to speak. And when I say entered the room, I mean your mind and your body, your awareness that fear has entered. I see you there. I'm aware of you. So that first step is super important. It's, it's really one of the first steps we take in much of what we do is to practice the awareness of something, but you don't, you don't have to believe it. You don't even really have to engage in it to practice awareness. You can just be aware of it. Okay. I see you. I feel you. I'm experiencing you. I'm aware that you're there. Then we're going to frame fear as a process. So that's kind of what we've been demonstrating today is that we don't need to pay the object of the fear any mind that it is the process of fear where our energy should go. So the presence of fear and the way in which you interact with it, the process that it uses to draw you in. Um, Sherry suggests that we view ourselves as the hunter and not the hunted. Um, So we view ourselves as predator, not prey when it comes to fear and dealing with fear um, in order to shift the power back to us and away from fear because we don't want to feed it. We don't want to make it stronger. And if we fear it, if we fear fear because the experience of being in fear is so uncomfortable, if we fear it and thus avoid it, we are actually feeding it. Um, and we, so we, we don't act, we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to be afraid of it. We can become the detective, the investigator, the hunter, uh, not the hunted. And then we take on the role of coach and we talk about that a lot on the show that in order to have a supportive and helpful conversation with ourselves, that we do need to step outside of ourselves, step to the side. So Eric Maisel calls it stepping to the side. Sherry calls it being your own mentor. I call it coaching yourself. So you want to take on the role of supportive coach and support yourself as you would someone you love and care about who is experiencing fear. So think about someone you love who is vulnerable because that's sort of what fear does, right? We feel vulnerable to it. And so what you're going to be doing is you're going to be coaching or mentoring your vulnerable self and providing yourself with some support. And 
you know, Sherry mentioned something that I just found, I found it just profound and interesting. And I'm still, I'm still thinking about it. She says, the only way to be invulnerable is to be completely vulnerable because in complete vulnerability, there is a lack of resistance. You're not, you're not fighting. You're not protecting. You're not, you, you're just fully present and vulnerable. And so if we view ourselves in that way as just being completely vulnerable, we take on the role of supportive coach and turn toward that vulnerable part of us, that scared part of us and offer comfort and allegiance. So we're saying to that scared, vulnerable part of ourself, our, our core self, you know, I say, you can trust me. I won't abandon you. I've got your back. And so you would say something similar to that, that you would say when some, if someone in your life is afraid, you would say, it's okay. It's okay. I'm here for you. I'm here to help you and support you. Even if there is something going on, um, something tangible, you, you can sort of support yourself through it so that you don't feel alone and overwhelmed because your higher self is here to support this vulnerable core of you. And so you investigate the process like we did today. So fear is demystified. Much of fear is thought and fear feeds itself. Fear feeds itself. It doesn't feed you. It's self-sustaining, which is why we want to starve it and bore it to death. And apply compassionate honesty to your situation. So just as I showed you in those examples, when you break it down into the Reader's Digest version of compassionate honesty about what is real about a situation, it typically is pretty straightforward. And all of the things that are swirling in our minds um, that are brought in by fear are just that. They are thoughts brought in by fear that are creating very convincing sensations. And then lastly, detach from the outcome, um, the feeling that there's a right or a wrong, or that there is a certain result that we are trying to bring into existence. That is, again, almost focusing on the object instead of the process. The process is the point. The practice is the point. So um, that's about all we have time for today. Um, I will come back to this topic because it's it's really pretty deep. Once you start exploring it, um, our relationship with fear and how it shows up in our life and how it kind of gets in our way and keeps us stuck and pulls us off track and causes uh, procrastination, all that stuff. I, I think um, it definitely warrants um, some additional discussion. So uh, we can just consider this the kind of the opening uh, the opening fear show, and we're, we will come back to it. Um, if you are interested in coaching or starting the freedom series with me, or just having a chat about something that um, you are facing, please contact me. I, you can find me at drafttangooctopus.com across social media at GTO coaching, or you can drop me an email at coachkj at giraffetangooctopus.com. Um, I hope you've heard something that is helpful to you today. I love making this show for you. Have a great week. Love yourself. 
for yourself, be yourself, and dance your own tango. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope we have helped you learn to love yourself unconditionally and accept and celebrate everything that makes you, you. Tune in next Wednesday for another episode. And in the meantime, dance your own tango.